0: This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell.
1: Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, Venezuelans kickstart the process to recall the country's president. We'll have an analysis, and we'll finish our in-depth discussion about the economic importance of remittances. But first, Jim Singer has more about the recall drive in Venezuela and the rest of our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Puerto Rico's debt crisis deepened this
0: week. The government of the U.S. territory was due to make a $422 million bond payment, but the island's officials could only scrape up less than a quarter of that amount. White House Press Secretary Josh Ernst expressed the frustration of President Obama during a news conference this week. He noted the Obama administration had sent its plan to help Puerto Rico to the U.S. Congress more than six months ago.
2: Unfortunately, we haven't seen the kind of movement in the Republican led Congress that we need to see to make a bailout of Puerto Rico less likely. The truth is, what the administration is seeking is to empower the Puerto Rican government with the kind of restructuring authority that cities all across the country have.
0: Puerto Rico's government owes creditors more than $72 billion. The island, which is a U.S. territory, does not have the same powers to restructure its debt as states and municipalities. Brazil's political crisis also worsened this week. Brazil's top court suspended the president of the country's chamber of deputies, Eduardo Cunha. Cunha is the third most powerful politician in the country behind the president and vice president. He heads the lower house of Brazil's Congress. Prosecutors asked for Cunha to be removed from office, accusing him of obstructing justice and taking part in the large Petrobras corruption scandal. Prosecutors say Cunha accepted millions in illegal payments as part of the scandal. Cunha recently pushed through the impeachment of President Dilma Rousseff. Brazil's Senate is investigating the president and could decide as early as next week whether to hold a formal trial for the president or to stop the impeachment proceedings. (music) Venezuela's opposition groups took the official steps this week in their attempt to recall President Nicolas Maduro from office. They submitted a petition to electoral authorities calling for the president's removal, a petition signed by more than 1.8 million Venezuelan voters. If electoral officials certify the petition has enough signatures, the opposition will have to gather signatures from about 4 million voters calling for a vote to decide if Maduro should serve his final three years in office. We'll have more on the Venezuelan recall movement later on this program. Honduran officials have arrested and charged four men with the murder of activist Berta Carceres. Authorities reported Carceres was murdered two months ago. She was an indigenous rights activist who had long opposed the construction of the Aguazarca Dam. The dam planned for construction in land sacred to indigenous people in Honduras. Two of the men charged in the murder have direct ties to the company that will own the dam once construction is complete. More first for Cuba this week. Starting with the first U.S. cruise ship to dock in Havana in almost 40 years. The Carnival cruise ship took the very short trip from Miami to Havana. Thousands of Cubans lined up on the city's seawall and docks to welcome those who came to visit on the cruise ship. Also this week, French fashion house Chanel staged the first international fashion show in Cuba since the Revolution. Supermodel Giselle Bunchen of Brazil was among the celebrities attending
1: the event. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jim Singer. Thanks, Jim. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Colombia. Our listening group in Colombia was our third-largest this past week, behind only our listeners in the United States and Mexico. So we say mil gracias to all of our listeners in Colombia and elsewhere around the globe. And now we venture across the Colombian frontier, east to Venezuela, where almost two million angry voters have signed a petition to recall President Nicolás Maduro. As we have reported before on this program, inflation is tracking at 500 percent, the country has reduced government services to two days a week, and an energy crisis has residents coping with daily blackouts and shortages. All this has translated into anger against President Maduro. We asked Michael McCarthy to analyze the situation for us. McCarthy is a research fellow with the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University and a consultant for the Woodrow Wilson Center. He joined us via Skype from Washington, D.C.
2: So first, it's important to recognize that uh, the Maduro government and the new secretary general of the Organization of American States, Luis Almagro, have had a highly contentious relationship since the latter uh, began his tenure at the OAS. Um, And Almagro has really tried to make Venezuela uh, an important part of his organizational agenda to make the OAS uh, relevant again here in Washington and throughout the hemisphere. Uh, The OAS uh, attempted to play a role in international observation uh, during the uh, legislative elections that were held in Venezuela last December. That didn't work um, in the sense that the OAS was not allowed to participate. However, Almagro made himself relevant um, by issuing a public letter um, denouncing uh, the quality of conditions in Venezuela for elections and also really... Stepping into uh, the domestic arena and criticizing other parts of Maduro government policy. Um, that's significant because uh, the OAS, uh, uh, as a result of this disagreement with the Mo- Maduro government, uh, became a sort of important venue for the Venezuelan opposition. Uh, to use to sort of uh, air its, its concerns and to make its voice heard on the international front and in front of other governments, therefore. Um, so very quickly, moving up to, to the past couple of weeks, the uh, delegation of Venezuelan congressmen, uh, all of them from the opposition and, and most of them from the uh, National Assembly's uh, Commission on Foreign Affairs, Uh, paid a visit uh, to the Secretary General uh, Almagro here in Washington, in which there were some expectations leading up to the meeting uh, about uh, the activation of the Inter-American Democratic Charter, uh, which is um, an important tool, if you will, uh, for uh, basically holding uh, the feet to the fire, so to speak, about governments that stray from democratic governance. Um, there's some debate about whether or not the charter can be <clears throat> applied in the Venezuelan context because uh, the, the, it, it's not. we're not talking about a classic form of coup in which the government that has taken power has been removed by non-constitutional means uh, in the sense of uh, access to and exercise of power. Um, but there are some serious questions about the alteration of the constitutional order in terms of the balance of powers between the executive and the Congress, and we can get into that. So with that scene set in the background, in Venezuela, a process of the opposition petitioning uh, the CNE, which is the electoral authority in the country, uh, for information about how to activate a recall referendum um, had been taking place, and that began really um, the first or second week of March. March 9th, I believe, is the first date that the opposition wrote or petitioned the CNE about what the procedures are. Just as this delegation of Venezuelan congressmen made it to Washington, basically, uh, the CNE finally responded uh, to the opposition about a month of a lag time from March, more than a month, from March 9th to April 26th. uh, And and the CNE finally responded, giving uh, a clear sign about what the opposition needed to do in terms of gathering signatures to activate this recall uh, referendum process. So the, the, the delivery, so to speak, of, of this petition sheet uh, sort of headed off, if you will, um, uh, the possibility for the delegation from the Venezuelan Congress to explicitly petition the Secretary General uh, of the Organization of American States to uh, activate this inter-American democratic charter process.
1: There's other international context, though, here, too, because domestic politics has shifted in in at least one crucial ally of Venezuela, and that would be Argentina. H- haven't the Argentines been more or less flipped in, in in how they respond to Venezuela on the international stage, and aren't they also leading some of these diplomatic efforts to, to support those in opposition in Venezuela?
2: Yeah, that's an absolutely crucial matter, Rick. Uh, thanks for pointing that out. In terms of setting the international scene, it's also important to recognize that in the sequence of events going back to 2015, the, an important intervening event between Almagro's letter to uh, the head of the CNE uh, and the December legislative elections was the victory of uh, Mauricio Macri. Uh, in Argentina, sort of basically defeating the Peronists in, in, Venez- in, in Argentina, sorry, uh, at the end of November, and Macri had made Venezuela into an issue on the campaign trail. However, uh, his foreign minister has sort of maintained a much more measured approach to Venezuela than Macri has at the level of the presidency. Yesterday, uh, that is uh, May 5th, uh, at the Organization of American States, uh, Macri's foreign minister, Susana uh, Malcora, made her debut, so to speak, at the OAS uh, and was actually probably the, the, the most in, most watched uh, speaker at, at yesterday's events, which was a session uh, uh, convoked um, by the secretary general at the request of uh, the government of Venezuela. And Malcora basically said that applying the Inter-American Democratic Charter at this moment seems to be, quote, hurried. In other words, they don't think that that their their approach right now from Argentina is actually that they want to sort of let the process play out a little bit more in Venezuela and see if an international coalition can be cobbled together, partially from South America, maybe including UNASUR, also internationally perhaps including the Vatican, which is a point we need to talk about a little bit as well, and as well as someone perhaps, or a representative, so to speak, from the Organization of American States, to kind of guide this recall referendum process to lower tensions in Venezuela. And it's also important to recognize here that um, international community members um, are well aware of the fact that in Venezuela, there's more than a political crisis. Venezuela is suffering a, a social and economic crisis that is of really historic proportions. And so really the questions of stability in some ways have become more significant Um, uh, to be perfectly frank, than questions of a perfectly democratic process. And in that regard, uh, other governments in the region, international stakeholders such as the Vatican and the European Union, and even to some extent, some folks here in Washington and the U.S. government are primarily concerned with the stability of the country and preventing um, a complete breakdown of the social order.
1: I think there's also some concern that what we've seen with this new opposition-led Congress in Venezuela is the fact that the Supreme Court always comes to the rescue for the Maduro administration, or the electoral bodies certainly have um, played roles um, that favor the, the current government. And, and what you're telling us really is that the international actors are balancing that, that, that what we're going to see with this recall process is without those international actors, perhaps the recall process would not be going through in an equal and fair way.
2: I, I, think, that's, I think that's an accurate assessment. I think the point that I'm making is that the, the recall referendum needs to be set in this broader context because the opposition on its own is not going to be able to pressure the government into uh, there being a recall referendum, uh, that's my sense uh, of the situation in order for there to be a recall referendum this year. And and I think it's correct that, you know, at the international level, people want to see sort of an electoral process this year that can sort of serve as, a, as an escape valve, if you will, for the social tensions in the country.
1: Well, if I could, isn't there a message that's already been sent to the Maduro government vis-a-vis the petitions that have been delivered to the electoral body, to the CNE in Venezuela. The fact that 1.8 million people in Venezuela signed those petitions so quickly, um, certainly there's the, the process of making sure that those are all verified and the credentials are all correct, but they only needed 200,000 signatures. So isn't that a, a message directly to the government about what people think?
2: That That's absolutely correct. Um, first, just uh, the images this week we've seen from Venezuela, of Venezuelans mobilizing on their own, if you will, uh, to sign these petitions, uh, have been very powerful signals about problems with the popularity of the Maduro government. The most powerful images that have come, that, that have circulated in the press are in fact those of uh, uniform military officials stopping at these, at these um, mobile offices that are set up under tents to sign these petitions calling um, to, to, to initiate this process. Those images of, peop- uh, of of public sector officials considered to be sort of very loyal um, to the Maduro government and the Chavista Project signing this process have really been um, a powerful signal, as I mentioned um, that, you know, there's really a lot, there's a groundswell of public opinion moving against the government in that regard. And I just want to return to, to, to a prior point you mentioned about the international community sort of playing this backup role to support the opposition on the recall front. I think it's also correct that, that like you said, um, that the uh, Supreme Court in Venezuela has essentially become, you know, an appendage of the Maduro government and the marginalization of the National Assembly raises extremely serious questions about whether or not there really has been a kind of institutional coup in the country. Um, this is a subject for another discussion, I think, in some ways. Um, but I think it's it's, it's important to recognize that, that really, at this moment, the international community is primarily concerned with their getting to be some kind of new democratic feeling Uh, in Venezuela uh, between the opposition and the government.
1: Is my understanding correct that now we wait to see if these signatures are validated by the CNA, by the electoral authorities, and we may take as long as two months before we we go to the next steps in this recall movement?
2: This is going to take quite a long time. Uh, There's first going to be verification of the signatures to initiate the process, and then there will be a second process of 20% of the electorate needing to turn out um, to, in fact, say that they want to move forward with this recall process. For example, the delays that have already been put in place by the CNE in terms of uh, moving this process forward are a strong indication of the fact that it's a highly politicized matter and of the fact that really, you know, it's going to require some kind of political deal to be cut. It also is important to recognize that these next couple of years in Venezuela are going to be very difficult economically. So whoever is in power is going to suffer um, or or is going to have to, you know, govern in very, very challenging times. And in that sense, they'll, you know, suffer a number of political costs for having to be in power while, while the economy is really in the gutter in a lot of ways.
1: Thank you so much. Michael McCarthy, Research Fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, also a consultant to the Woodrow Wilson Center, joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C. on Latin Pulse today. Thank you so much, Michael.
2: My pleasure, Rick.
1: Coming up globalization, economics, and the importance of remittances. We'll explain. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures life, an
3: amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund action kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-CALL-WWF.
1: Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Last week we engaged Manuel Orozco in a deep discussion regarding the importance of remittances the billions of dollars that flow from migrants in the US back to Latin America and other spots around the globe. Orozco is with the Inter American Dialogue and he's the author of Centro America in La Mera, Central America in the Lens. He joined us via Skype from San Jose, Costa Rica to discuss remittances and globalization. Here's the second part of our interview. When we talk about remittances, I'm I think sometimes about the complaints that that people in the United States make about the amount of money that is spent on um, foreign assistance. In a way, remittances are an informal type of of, of foreign assistance, and in this particular case, uh, flowing from the pockets of immigrants, both legal and unauthorized, to Mexico as, as a way of support
3: to families and friends? In practical terms and in, in economic terms, it's not assistance. It, it, we got to think about it in this way. From the macroeconomic standpoint, remittances are basically a unilateral transfer of earnings that an immigrant makes back to a household. In, in the more practical sense, um, it is rent. And a such is just part of a family obligation that an immigrant performs. Um, you know, you in any household, your household, my household, uh, an immigrant's household, a transnational household, um, you have to meet family obligations. They are not assistance. They are basically what you're required to do as part of your um, responsibilities as a member of the household, as a parent, or as a son that you look after your family. So the flow of money, of course, comes to a household that um, receives it in the form of a rent. It's not a remunerated work because no, th- that money was not performed while working, but is sent through a family member, from another family member. And in that sense, that rent, basically, is a key source of income. It is important, to stress that because um, we cannot compare it to official development assistance, for example, which is government to government, or government to civil society. In this case, these are person-to-person uh, remunerated work transfers to households, and they're part of a trend in the global economy that shape, basically, the way in which people um, economic activity and productivity operates in the in the international economy so therefore they're
1: they're an expression of globalization they are a representation of the new transnational workforce exactly you are the author of the Dialogue's annual report on remittances and i i wonder because of that you you have a a, a global view on how important this is Obviously, your report reflects that Mexico is the one part of Latin America that gets the most uh, of this flow of money from the United States through remittances each year. But there are other smaller countries that are more dependent on this um, form of of money transfer, specifically
3: countries in Central America. The, the current... Um scenario that we live in today in the uh, in in this day and age that we call the era of the digital industrial revolution, the era of globalization um, is shaped by a number of forces. One of them is the integration of markets at a global scale. Uh, But the other one is the increased fluidity of human mobility, particularly labor mobility. There are over 350 million people migrating from their home countries um, to the rest of the world on a regular basis. Now, if you think of them in terms of households, that is, that basically each one of them is a member of the household, we're talking about one in ten households in the world has a migrant. Um, They do send money to their families. You know, you're talking about people from India, China, Tajikistan, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Haiti, as well as places in Africa like Morocco, Mali, Senegal uh, and even Zimbabwe. The the magnitude of this migration uh, is quite significant. People from Southern Europe, for example, migrate within Europe in large numbers and support their home countries' economies. Now, when, within the context of Latin America, we have over 30 million migrants, um, about half of them that are in the United States, and they sent money. The volume of money that they sent was nearly $70 billion last year. And there are countries that are sending money in larger numbers with increasing growth rates than other countries. Now, what is interesting about this growth reported by some of the largest um, growing economies, uh, growing remittance-sending groups are countries whose um, societies are actually going through uh, serious problems of state uh, strength, fragility, or stability. We're talking about countries like Haiti, Honduras, Cuba, Nicaragua, Mexico, El Salvador, for example. These are some of the highest-growing remittance uh, countries in Latin America. All of them are experiencing significant growth rates, and they are connected to the uh, political position in their societies. Fragile economies like Haiti, for example, uh, a weak state like Honduras. They are going through severe waves of violence and political instability that are pushing people out. Migration today, and this is a global phenomenon, but migration today. It's a byproduct of a confluence of different forces. Economics is not the only one, but one of the most powerful ones is political. The wave of people that are migrating today, and even who are sending money, they are doing so because of political situations. And to give you an idea, Central American migrants, the, the flow of unaccompanied minors from Central America, to the united states over the past five years is huge we're talking about over a hundred thousand children who have migrated to the u.s over the past five years and it's accompanied by three hundred thousand central american adults who tend to live central america every year since 2009 now about half of them make it to the united states plus a number of unaccompanied minors, or a number of minors, basically. These numbers are so significant that they are coming to represent the second largest volume of labor force and migrants who are escaping for political reasons in the world after Syrian refugees. This is a significant figure, and remittances are only illustrating the pattern.
1: I'm not sure that when most people consider the global Migration crisis that is happening right now that they connect it, as you just have, to remittances? No, this
3: is a phenomenon that basically it's being missed by many leaders, by many countries, and even international organizations. The magnitude of people leaving Central America is significant. For example, in the case of Honduras, about 70,000 Hondurans attempt to leave their country every year. This is a country that has 7,000 homicides a year. Now, these 70,000 people about half of them end up getting into the US. The majority of them come from places where violence is significant. The same thing is observed in the case of El Salvador and in the case of Guatemala. The magnitude of the problem doesn't amount just to the number of people that are living, but consider the following. It, it It is basically about the equivalent to one-third to half of the annual increase of the labor force in Central America. That is basically between one out of three people from Central America end up working in the United States. And the second important issue to all this is that the there is a driver uh, associated, there is a, a rational calculation associated to this dynamic of migration and violence that makes you think and consider that the opportunity cost of staying and being killed is lower than the opportunity cost of going and risking your life in the trek for two months to come to the United States. In other words, you are certain that you're more likely to die in Honduras if you stay than crossing the border. And, you know, all you have to do is look at the statistics of the annual or even daily homicides. In Honduras, we're talking about 14 people killed every day. That, of course, when you look at the calculation of taking your chances during a two-month trek, uh, your chances are less than one in a hundred thousand. Thank you so much,
1: Manuel Orozco of the Inter-American Dialogue and the author of the new book, Central America in La Mera. Joining us via Skype from San Jose, Costa Rica on Latin Pulse. Thank you so much.
3: You're welcome. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for joining us this week. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word .org. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henti Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at LinkTv, all one word, dot O R G, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv dot org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of
0: Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions.